Welcome everyone to a new episode of Water Cooler Conversation. Um, it's been a long time, but we're back. And I've got a very interesting episode um, today, uh, Macron's Europe. Um, and a very interesting guest is accompanying me, Jorge González Gallarza, who is a graduate in economics from UCL. He has worked in policy think tanks in Washington, D.C., and is a fellow podcaster, has his own podcast. Well, he co-hosts this podcast called uh, Uncommon Decency. Um, It's very interesting. I've given it a a good few listens, and it's kind of related to what we do here. Um, uh, I think it centers around uh, Europe and and, and politics, but, well, he can give us a bit of an insight into that now. Am I right in in describing your podcast as, as so? That's absolutely right. And, you know, and I think a lot of the issues that we'll be getting into over the course of uh, the hour uh, are also germane to what we try to do. And I, I've been a fan of podcasts for a while now. And I, uh, as I was telling you before we went live, I'm a big fan of the kind of the breadth of topics that you cover, the kind of the very uh, varied, and you know, very, very interesting guests that you've gotten from the world of business and, and policy and whatnot. So I'm, I'm very happy to be with you. And thanks so much for, for having me on. No, it's it's a pleasure, Jorge. Thank you for accepting to come on. Um, so to give everyone uh, an intro to what we're going to do today. So the aim of the episode is to give and gain a deeper understanding of the complexities of Macron's ambitions plans for Europe. Um, to make it simple to follow, um, and as we always uh, as we always do, uh, to have a conversation on the topic, we will divide the episode into three main blocks. So we will start talking about the beginnings, uh, Macron's rise to power, his um, his uh, backing of European values and embracing Europe, um, and then secondly, we will move on to how the COVID nineteen pandemic has affected these uh, Macron plans, Macron's plans for Europe. And thirdly, um, we've divided a block of defense in which we will talk about uh, a good few things relating to the Islamist terrorist attacks, um, NATO, the UN Security Council, a lot, a variety of different topics. So we'll do our best at keeping the conversation um, flowing and kind of understandable for everyone because there's a lot to talk about. Um, so just to start, I think everyone knows this, but Macron came to power uh, in 2017. He took the Elysee uh, after uh, winning the second round against Marie Le Pen, uh, who is leader of the Front National and uh, who is her rival in the or the, uh, the, so the polls say that she is her his closest rival in the upcoming 2022 elections. Am I right? I think that's absolutely fair. It's a fair bet. I think uh, the national rally, as the, the English or, or the Brits uh, call it, uh, is sure to be in the second round of the 2022 race. That's absolutely sure. Because uh, one thing um, uh, that like I'm curious about here is... The polls show that no party has really risen in popularity in France. Um, the only ones to have had uh, a slight increase are the the right uh, party, Le, Le Republicain. And um, my question here to you, you may, might, might be able to shed a bit more light on this topic, is whether other candidates such as Edouard Philippe, his previous prime minister, 
whether uh, Gérard Darmanin um, or even Pierre Devilliers, who I read a, a recent interview on. He's a, a retired um, army veteran. Um, these are names that are quite popular in the right, but the right, the problem with the right now is they don't seem to have a strong leader. Um, do you see any of these candidates making um, making a race against Macron? You know, that's a very interesting place to, to start off with. I think uh, the center right in France, that what you could call the sort of the Christian Democrats, right, the heirs to the Gaullist family. Uh, that kind of uh, blossomed in the 50s and 60s when uh, de Gaulle uh, was still around and, and that kind of went through several iterations, right? It was first called RPR, then it, it, it became MPR, and it went through several iterations. It was for, for a long while called l'UMP, and now they're called, as you said, uh, les Républicains. Uh, the problem with this, with this center-right family right now is that when Macron... Uh, became a candidate in the 2017. So let, let's maybe uh, take a step right back, Will, because I think um, th this is a very interesting question. We should, we should perhaps give some context. Um, if you would listen to maybe some of the commentary, some of the punditry back in 2017, the election was almost uh, given away. Uh, you know, it was taken for granted well in advance that the center right was in a very good position to win in 2017. If you remember the previous, uh, five years, the previous quinquennat, it had been Francois Hollande, the center-left sort of socialist uh, president. There had been uh, the financial crisis that he handled not very well. There had been a number of uh, national crises. It was a very, very, um, uh, a very kind of uh, uh, mismanaged, amended, you could say. On, on, and that was a common assessment, I think, by even his own camp. And so what you get in 2017 is Macron, this young minister, a very ambitious guy, uh, he had been a banker. Uh, he had, he, had a, he was a graduate of the INA. He was this very, very kind of elite uh, poster child of the French elite kind of personality. And he ran on his own ticket, right? He uh, broke out of the socialist mold, right? He was serving in a socialist government, but he ran as his own kind of ticket, right? He, he found it. He set up his own party, which is called En Marche, which is the initials of his name and family name. And he ran and won in a very unforeseen way. Because remember, as I, as, as I was saying, the election was, was, it was taken for granted that it was gonna be the candidate at the center right that was gonna grab the presidency because they had been out of power since Sarkozy and since the socialists had mismanaged the economy so badly, it was, all, it was, it was a foregone conclusion. Now what happens is Macron uh, snaps up a lot of the center right vote, uh, particularly, I mean, uh, we, we could get into some of the details of what his electorate is. Uh, but in the second round, obviously, a lot of the center right ends up voting for Macron because he's against mm. Marine Le Pen. And that there's, there's, there's a kind of a, a taboo on Marine Le Pen across the political spectrum. So he ended up winning. And the French center right hasn't really evolved out of that predicament. They haven't found kind of this um, a, a charismatic enough candidate that can now contest Macron. He is also, to be fair to him, he has recruited a lot of the center-right top figures to be his ministers. So you mentioned Edouard Philippe. He was a mayor in Le Havre. He was a very kind of a competent, same kind of enough profile, uh, and a number of others that are now in his cabinet that, that come from the center-right. So to your question, um, I don't really see the center-right, Les Républicains, pulling off any sort of surprise upset in 2022. I think second round of the 2022 race is really going to be I could I could battle. I mean, you you could, you would want to bet a lot of money on this too. It's really going to be 
uh, in all likelihood, uh, uh, another uh, a reiteration of Marine Le Pen and Macron the second. My, my apologies for that long-winded answer. No, absolutely. Um, we're we're here for that. Um, but as you were saying, what surprised? Well, I don't know what surprised me, but Macron when he was running, he would always say, "I'm not. I'm neither right nor." left on on center and uh, everyone started asking him questions but what about this what about that uh but he was very strong in his belief that he was a center candidate but when you look at his government and uh, where people from his cabinet have come from is really a majority from right-wing parties like i think um one of the ministers i think she's a minister for for culture now she is uh bachelet yeah am yes. i right and she was a minister with uh, Sarkozy, mm-hmm. who was a uh, right, um, who was in the Le Republicain. So, um, and and he's kind of like his, like what he's talking about now. We'll get this at the end. Sorry for mentioning now, but um, his speech on radical terrorism or Islamist terrorism and um, making our borders more secure is kind of taking a bit from what uh, Marie Le Pen would do now and he's kind of looking towards that 2022 election to see he, if he will be re-elected. Yeah, that, that, you know, that's a very interesting point. I've seen a lot of media coverage that runs along those lines. I think you have a lot of the Anglo, Anglo-speaking media um, pulling uh, this sort of narrative um, according to which Macron's whole strategy is to play tough and to be a sort of hawkish, uh, mm. hawkish candidate on whether that be on immigration, whether that be on free speech, which I know you want to get into uh, towards the end. And, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of truth to it. I think we, we shouldn't forget that I think political candidates and political office holders are never fully untethered from electoral concerns. So we're always thinking about the next election. In an ideal world, we would want to have candidates that are able to disentangle themselves from, from elections. But the world that we live in is one where candidates are constantly thinking, you know, how do I get reelected? Or at least how do I make sure that I leave a good legacy? Um, so I think you're absolutely right. I think there is many ways where you could see Macron kind of playing up his sort of, you know, hawkish credentials, right? Like on the, the la loi sur le séparatisme, this uh, bill that he recently passed that is going to get very tough on the sort of the Islamist networks across France, the kind of the NGOs, we, we can get into some of that, but also the immigration front. Uh, those are certainly issues where I think Macron is, um, I'm not sure he's being successful so far. I think Marine Le Pen, a lot of the people who will be voting for Marine Le Pen in 2022 uh, have a, a sort of vision where it's her or no one else, right? I mean, mm. she is our candidate, right? She's the, the only one that can speak for us. Uh, there's a sort of like forgotten men kind of mentality to that. And she's, she's kind of their, uh, their, their candidate. So I, you know, I, it would be interesting to see how far to the right Macron's electorate can, can, can go. Uh, but, but I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, electorally, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a wise bet to think that there's a, a, a substantial number of people between the central left and the hard right that want to see Macron be tough and that will respect him if he is tough. And I think you see that a lot. I think you see a lot of people who, who think along those lines. Yeah, no, I, I, and you were mentioning um, there's a lot of people in France who were, who literally like in their minds is just Le Pen. Um, 
And that's why I think this discussion about Europe is so important because Macron has uh, very, very, very different views to Le Pen on Europe. Um, and Macron, he's been kind of labeled or seen as this little Bonaparte who wants to make kind of uh, Europe his playground, uh, essentially, like German. Um, and it's very interesting because he kind of wants to European, like make France more more European, but also make Europe more French. Um, and that's why it's interesting to talk about this topic, because in his trips prior to coronavirus, he always talked in, in Europe's name. He always portrayed himself as a European, the, the European leader, um, which I think in some instances is good um, to have one voice on Europe ab- abroad. But it also carries its difficulties because there's so many differences between member states. There was a very, I read a very uh, funny anecdote on Jean-Claude Juncker, the previous president of the European Commission, when he went over to see Donald Trump and Donald Trump and seat uh, many other um, European leaders, such as uh, Rutte, uh, Merkel uh, and others. But Jean-Claude Juncker, he got there and, he's, uh, and he said, forget about the rest. I'm Europe, Do you know, because he saw that. Um, that talking uh, as as one person, as as Europe, as one body, was was way more beneficial for Europe and way more understandable for whoever in in the international arena. I'm talking here, um, but yeah, sorry, a little side turn there. Um, that's why it's important to talk about is Macron's vision on, vision on on Europe because he ran a very European ticket. He's had the Sorbonne speech, which was very talked about, extremely popular. Um, obviously on his side of the boat. Um, and then in 2019, he wrote a letter addressed to Europeans uh, explaining uh, the risks uh, Europe has uh, today with um, environmental problems, uh, defense, uh, liberties, inequalities. And he also expressed that this was a very fragile moment for Europe um, because this was when Brexit was kind of being um, seeing if there was a deal or no deal. Well, we're seeing it now, but this was when Theresa May and Johnson, whatever. Um, and now it's a way riskier time for Europe, obviously because of the coronavirus pandemic. What are the kind of key points um, of Macron's vision of Europe? Maybe you can give us any. Yeah. You know, it, it's 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 um, it, it sounds like a very obvious question, but it's a question that has been on everyone's mind, essentially. There's so much, um, there's, a, there's a huge lack of clarity around what he means by strategic autonomy, right? So, and if we wanna give a sort of, I, I really like how you've traced uh, his idea all the way back to 2019, where he uh, already kind of starts fill, filling the waters with the European public. He syndicates this column uh, across uh, all major kind of French and, and some German media outlets where he's addressing the European public. And you essentially, I don't think you've ever had that at the, at the scale of, of Europe. I mean, you've had, we've had the EU sort of the echelons of the EU leadership, the commission, the parliament, the council, uh, these people rarely kind of address the whole European public in a very kind of large, you know, widely staged kind of theatric almost way, right? So he really is, is looking to feel a, fill a vacuum here. And if you, I mean, you traced it all the way back to Sorbonne. Some people traced it even further, where like even at the very early beginnings of his mandate, uh, he was already um, drawing on some of the, the terms, right? Strategic autonomy, um, 
And we can maybe even, even get into some of the, the earlier antecedents of that notion. If we want to go back to Gaullist uh, lore, uh, but uh, I think you're absolutely right. We, we need to be asking what it is that Macron means by that. And it, it is by no means clear, not even to the people who support his vision, what exactly he means. If you want to take the, more, the, the most charitable um, definition of strategic autonomy or the way that Macron himself would phrase it, it would run along the lines of something like this. Europe has to be autonomous on the world stage. It has to be able to chart its own course, able to... Um, interact with other world powers in a way that it defines for itself. Um, we'll be getting to some of the details of this, but essentially the notion is that Europe is a powerful um, block, right? Fifth, uh, 500 million customers, huge internal market, uh, very wealthy. Uh, uh, it has a lot of potential, but it doesn't use that potential to advance its, in, its interests and its ideals. So the idea of strategic autonomy, again, if you want to take the more charitable definition, is we should be using our potential to, to have an influence in the world where we're going to be able to advance um, the welfare of Europeans, whether that means on trade policy, industrial policy, we'll be getting to a lot of the details of this, I'm sure. Um, and, and we should also have some influence on, on the geostrategic makeup of the world, right? I mean, we have this US-China rivalry that is emerging. We've got a, an increasingly bipolar world where these two um, almost hegemons are contesting uh, for world um, hegemony and, and, uh, and Europe has to play a role, whether that is you know closer to the States, whether that is in sort of a middle ground position, but it needs to wield its power to, um, to, um, in order to have a weight on, on world affairs. So I think that's kind of the more charitable definition. And, and then once you've, once you've said that, then the question becomes, well, let's focus specifically on what that means for defense, as you said, let's focus on what that means for trade policy. And, and, um, and I think, and I think um, I'm looking forward to, to kind of getting into that with you, but that's, that's Macron's main weakness is that there isn't yet a lot of clarity because he knows that, as you said, there's such a wide mosaic of interests in Europe. He's essentially right now up against AKK, the, the German defense minister, but even a lot of people across Europe have different views. So uh, um, I think he's, he's kind of like waiting to build up uh, momentum and waiting to see with the Biden administration kind of what the relation uh, there is was going to be. But again, I think we need a lot more detail uh, as your question implied. Yeah, but I think it's interesting. You just mentioned the Biden administration. A lot of people are like, "Well, yeah, thank God, Biden reelected. Our relation with the U.S. will 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 be better, and multilateralism will come back." But Macron uh, is like, "Well, regardless of whether it's a Trump or Biden administration, we should not be worrying about what's going on over the other the other side of the pond. We should be worried about what's going on here, um, and building a stronger Europe." Uh, but a lot of people have problems with this, uh, especially on the far right or even on the far left. They want less Europe. They want more national autonomy. But a, a key thing, and I think a key outtake of what we've learned, uh, especially during these times of pandemics, is that nations rich in history, uh, such as like European nations are, they cannot survive by themselves today as they have done historically. There needs to be kind of a larger power europe that kind of works as one um 
to deliver a better place for Europe and uh, strategically in mm. the world. I think this is where like strategic autonomy comes into play, which is what you were saying in, in a very different topics. Um, so switching to the second block, I think it's we can get to that to here now because we've kind of talked about Biden's administration, talked about the, the effects of the COVID pandemic. I've just mentioned them. Um, and there is some very interesting talks about Europe being more strategically auto- uh, autonomous and everyone was in accordance with this when they saw that our we had to import our masks from China we had to Im- import uh, medical uh, materials from China and people were a bit annoyed by this that our dependence on other powers um, and, and it sounds good until you get into the detail um, mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of differences, uh, and uh, and what I want to get to now here is whether the COVID nineteen pandemic will accelerate Macron's vision on strategic autonomy, or will it um, be where it was, which is kind of like floating around, as you said, like every like Macron's vision is just like that, but he's not going ahead because he knows he's aware of the differences. What what's your thoughts around that? It's it, that's such a great question, and I I, I like how you you've um, anchored this in in um, I mean what, Macron's kind of like main selling point is that again, but it, it's kind of like it, it feeds into itself. I mean Macron's main point is that it should be Europe, no one else, deciding Europe's fate and deciding Europe's role in the world. And a big part of that was I mean again as you said that's one of the main selling points is it matters not who sits in the Oval Office. It, it doesn't matter whether it is a, a sort of a, a hardline restrainer or even an, an, an isolationist, if you want to call him that, I wouldn't call him that, but uh, it, it, even if it's a restrainer like Trump or even if it's a liberal internationalist like Biden, it shouldn't matter. Europe shouldn't depend or be tied in any way to the, the party that controls the White House. It should be able to chart its own course. And, and that's kind of, it, it, it all starts there. I mean, if we want to go one step further, the reason we're having this whole conversation, I mean, Macron will, will never confess to this. Macron will say that this is Europe uh, growing its own debate. But the, the real reason why we're having all of this is because we've had four years of Trump where at NATO summits, at bilats, as the diplomats call, it, call them, so the meetings between the US and individual European nations, and Trump has been very sternly uh, lambasting and, 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 um, and uh, accusing uh, EU countries of underspending on defense. And, and I think that's a really core point that you have to start off with is we are part of this alliance, the NATO alliance, which is the, the North Atlantic alliance of democratic free nations that encompasses mostly Europe and the United States, Canada, Australia, other Turkey countries. also, which is Turkey. Yeah, which is weird at yeah, European I mean, level. I know you want to get into some of that. And, and uh, but and, and NATO asks, the, the treaty that you signed to get into NATO requires you to spend a certain amount of your GDP on defense, 2%. 2%, yeah. Right. And so many of these EU countries have, under, have failed to, to hit that target. And so Trump, he's a sort of very kind of like hardcore, um, he's a very kind of... Um, very straight to the point, what you see is what you get. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Very kind of hardball negotiating tactics, right? Very like New York business real estate antics, right? I mean, why, why are the Europeans uh, ripping us off on defense? Yeah, right? that's a very good way of putting it. Very business. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. 
that that's Trump's line, you know, and wh whether it is China or Mexico or Canada, there's always someone ripping us off. There's always someone making billions on America. And uh, in, in this case, and this is a lot of something that a lot of Europeans have failed to grasp is that we are, we are being accused rightly, in my view, and I think in the view of anyone who looks at the hard facts, um, uh, we are we have been underspending. So Trump has been very critical, and that has soured, that has complicated the transatlantic alliance, right? So the strategic autonomy debate doesn't necessarily begin there, but it 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 um it it got a boost from Trump because that you know Macron was like you know he's right we yeah, should be no. spending on our own defense and we yeah. should be living up to our commitments. Um, so that, that, that's kind of one, one, one point. And, um, I think I, I, I lost my train of thought, but I, I like how you started there with the, the U S side of the relationship, um, and kind of how that plays into, into the debate. Yeah. You were saying like spending, um, to reaching 2% of the country's GDP when it comes to NATO. Um, I think you're right. Like most European countries haven't, I think Spain is literally less than 1%. Um, one but then, you, yeah. So, um, yeah, you were commenting about Macron being saying, oh, this guy's right and we should be spending more on defense and kind of giving giving Trump praise, but well, kind of praise being like he's a rubbish. But at the same time, uh, Macron, uh, one of the points uh, where he's talking about strategic autonomy, he reiterates that we need to create a sort of European defense army. Mm. Do you know, and that's when tensions uh, got very kind of tense. Between, uh, tensions got high between um, France, well, Europe, France, Macron, and Trump, who have normally had a, a kind of very good relationship. But at that point, they were sorry because Trump was being like, "Well, you're not leaving NATO. You're not like going to create a body similar to NATO uh, at European level." But um, but that's one of the one, that's one of the points. Um, in strategic economy, which is very important, is creating kind of a European uh, army defense that is able to stand up to problems. But at the same time, I see difficulties here um, because um, it's it's hard for me to see uh, maybe Italians or other countries um, backing, for example, the Greeks now against the Turks in their in their in their disputes at a military level like pushing for more uh, of a hard power it's difficult for me to see that whereas historically over the past uh, century um the states has reached out for calls of help from europeans obviously two world wars they saved uh, uh they saved the day so it's difficult for me to see why maybe the Italians, who have a close relationship to Russians or Chinese as well, um, mm -hmm. it's difficult for me to see why they would kind of support the Greeks in their fight against um, the Turkish, the Turks. I don't know what you think. That's such a good point. That's such it's it's such a good point because it just underscores the difficulty of um, uniting uh, defense. Uh, outlooks across across Europe. I think the, the place where you have to start here is to just to kind of, uh, there's always a minute portion of the European political spectrum that is, that keeps banging on about a European army, but we should be clear that that was, um, that was discarded, I think back in the 70s where there were, uh, there, there were I, I forget if, if it wasn't a referendum, but there was, there was a vote in the EU council and what was then the, the, whatever that was called at the time. But the idea of a 
common European army where uh, service members, people who are groomed to um, to use, you know, weapons, firepower in the, in the line of battle, uh, the EU is never going to have that kind of thing. What we may have one day is national armies seconding their forces to, to some form of cooperative operations, right? In the same way that we have NATO, NATO is not an army. We have national uh, armies cooperating as part of NATO, right? Because I, I think it's a crucial point to start because you still have some people, I heard recently Guy Verhofstadt, who's a sort of federalist yeah. uh, politician from, from Belgium, uh, who wants a federal Europe. He's, he's still very much about creating a European army. And we can, we can get into that. I think you're absolutely right that whenever that uh, comes back on, on the agenda, if ever that is proposed again, the main hurdle is going to be, because um, NATO has Article 5, which means that if one, if, if, um, if, if they come for you, I will back you up, right? It's like the, the clause at the heart of NATO is that if they, uh, if, they um, if one country is aggressed, then the whole alliance is aggressed, right? And, I, and, and that kind of plays in interesting ways with Russia and Turkey, but, um, but uh, essentially, I, I think you're right, because you, you are never going to have that sort of commitment, I think, among Europeans themselves. I think there's less of a unity, uh, sort of, there's, there's, less, there's less of a willingness to commit to each other's security and defense than there is at the NATO level. I think, I think the, the, the American security mantle has meant a lot for Europe, the idea that we're backed up by the Americans. But, but maybe that's getting into a rabbit hole. What I, what I think is interesting is, um, is um, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, the French traditionally, Macron and his predecessors traditionally have been very staunch proponents of European defense cooperation. And uh, which is different from a European defense army, as I, as I was making clear. But defense cooperation means these days essentially two programs. They're, they're called PESCO and EDF. Uh, PESCO is, stands for per, uh, Permanent European Security Cooperation, or I, I forget the, the initials, the acronym, but uh, EDF is the European Defense Fund, which means that European nations pledge money to this one single fund at the EU level that invests money in defense programs like uh, research into like uh, like defense uh, programs that go into like building new weapons, building new ca capabilities. So the French have always been about, we need to pull together our capabilities to, because um, that gives you economies of scale. That ensures that countries aren't being redundant in the kinds of things that they spend, because you don't want to have France and Italy building 50 uh, of the same type, 50 tanks of the exact same type. Right. Or, or, or that's just a, a dumb example, but it, you want economies of scale. So you're absolutely right, Will, because at the start, you said, you know, the Americans have always been sort of um, ambiguous about this because the Americans, on one hand, they tell us, listen, you need to spend more on defense. But when the Europeans say we need to spend more on European defense, they don't like that because they want because the defense co contractors, which are majorly American companies, right, Booz Allen Hamilton, um, uh, some of the other, some of the other major defense contractors that contract with the Pentagon, contract with the CIA, right? The sell them sell uh, weapons to the U.S. federal agencies. They want to sell weapons in Europe too. Hmm. So Europe spends on EU cooperation. That means Rafale. That means Alstom. That that means the European companies get to get to get those contracts, right? Uh, so the Americans don't like that. The Americans say you need to be spending on more on defense, but we want our companies to have to be at least part of the tenders, right? I mean, obviously they're not, they're probably not gonna pick up the whole, uh, the whole um, cake, 
but um, but it, but it's it's a very good point you make because there and Macron has been um, I, I hear sometimes from people that he's been very hard edged with Trump in, in pointing that out and that listen you're like figure like uh, like make up your mind like what, what do you want <laughs> you know because it's kind of it's kind of double face from the Americans but um, but yeah um, I, I, I forget the exact wording of your question but I think that was a very important point to make clear is that. When we're talking about higher defense spending, we need to be clear about what kind of defense we mean, uh, because the as as it stands now, defense spending across the EU is majorly a national matter. National governments, right, negotiate like the government negotiates with the parliament every year to pass a budget, uh, right? Like our government in Spain a few months ago was struggling to pass a budget, and that's how they mm. got the the Basque parties right to to uh, to get their votes, but. Every year there's these negotiations and uh, the government asks the parliament for higher defense levels. And that's very hard because the parliament a lot of times or the left wing of the political spectrum says, no, that wars don't, shouldn't be a thing in the 21st century. We don't want wars, whatever. But um, when the, those uh, spending levels get approved, that money, you need to ask yourself, where, where is that going to go? Is that going to go towards um um, like paying our service members, is that going to go towards contracts in our own uh, country, or is that going to go at the EU level where there's some level of cooperation? So, so I just want to point those out because I thought it was very interesting. Your question pointed at it is that there's there's different things that can be meant by higher defense uh, spending. Yeah, no, it, I, I, I don't uh, want people to feel that we're going rambling on because um, we are trying to point out the difficulties there is with a lot of different, like this is one other topic and we're literally just scratching, scratching the surface. Um, but in, in another, in another block, um, which I would kind of like to mention, like the environmental challenges and Macron, Macron posing himself as a uh, leader in this challenge with the, the green bonds in France and, and going to the U S um, um, and giving a speech in the house about, uh, not being reluctant, uh, to being more aggressive in their policies with climate change, but obviously with the Trump administration, not much could be done here. Here is, I think a victory, not just for Europe, but a global level, um, because with environmental challenges, you do need cooperation because if one is not doing it, doesn't matter if the other one isn't is is doing well if 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 the states aren't kind of collaborating or making sure their emissions go down um it doesn't really make sense um so that's kind of like the the, um, the Biden administration coming back to the Paris agreement is good news uh for environmental challenges uh, which I don't really know much about the specifics but I like in some instances uh defense a lot of differences uh, environmental challenges, a lot of similarities, especially I think at European level. Most, maybe correct me, you might know, most of the countries are aware of the challenges. In different degrees, they might be more likely to be more aggressive, or they might be like, well, that it's not as important as you think. We we do acknowledge the challenges, but it, we don't think it's it's as immediate um, as you think. But uh, I think wide consensus is that everyone agrees so there is differences in different topics um but then again now with uh the COVID 19 pandemic um the relief package so the um, uh, next generation eu which we have an episode on um mm. and looking for more fiscal integration now that's another 
kind of discussion in itself, more fiscal integration, more fiscal spending. And it's opened up a lot of doors and a lot of, uh, especially now where we're having um, the, the deal uh, blocked by kind of both sides, the European side and the Hungarian and Bulgarian side. So uh, to give people some context, maybe you could give a better context, but just a brief intro is that mm, Hungary and Poland um, are changing their um, constitutional, some constitution, constitutional articles or aims, and the at European level, especially countries like Germany or, or the Netherlands, um, are trying to Im- implement a mechanism whereby you have to respect the rule of law to be able to be granted that relief from the European, the next generation EU package. Absolutely. So from fiscal integration, we go to rule of law. And so literally, it's so hard. What are your thoughts on this? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, um, that, that's, that's uh, as you said, it, it's a huge, um, it's a huge um, thing to unpack. Uh, uh, the latest news, I, I believe, was uh, late last night or either it was certainly yesterday, I, I believe. I forget at what point of the day the final news kind of solidified. But the news from yesterday was that the, um, we, have a, we have a deal now, right? So as you said, we go back to um, July. J- July this year was, was when... Uh, the EU Council, so essentially the meeting, the the roundtable of all the EU heads of state and government, right? Uh, like prime ministers, essentially, um, where where they meet in July, they were able to um, agree on, as you said, a relief package. It was actually the relief package, which um, was 750 million euros plus the budget for the next seven years. What what in the EU is called the MFF, the, the multiannual financial framework. That's like the EU budget. That's like an EU budget is made up of national contributions. This is money that the countries of the EU give up uh, to the EU so that we have uh, a budget that is common to everyone. Um, but as you said, in July, we had a deal where you know all the countries came together and said, okay, this is the money that uh, we're gonna be putting together. And that means fiscal integration. So the wealthier countries gave more money than they could then expect. They had a net. They had a net negative balance, whereas the poorer countries were getting more. Um, but the, everyone came together and agreed that that was needed in order to secure relief for Europeans, uh, because countries alone couldn't really handle it themselves in the best way. You needed to come together, and you needed uh, the wealthier countries, which also, in some cases, not all of them, but in some cases, happened to be uh, dealing with COVID better, as opposed to, for instance, Italy and Spain, that needed more money to deal with COVID and that also were poor, had less money. Anyway, long story short is in July, we had a deal. And um, uh, several months later, Germany and the Netherlands, this was actually just a month ago, came out saying, okay, we have a deal, but hold on. We're gonna put, we're gonna peg some conditions onto this deal. And we have these two villains. We have Poland and Hungary. Uh, they're ruled by countries that are perceived as being to the far right, right? Kind of like national populism, uh, sort of like, you know, there, there used to be Salvini in that sort of front as well, but there, you know, Orban and um, and, Mor- and Morayeki um, are thought of being to the on the far right, and we, we can get into why that is. But um, Germany and the Netherlands essentially um, they they peg this this so-called rule of law conditionality mechanism, as you said, which is does exactly what you described. It 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 it, it, it essentially says, you know, Hungary and Poland 
either you roll back your reforms, and we can get into some of those with some of those reforms where you hinted at them, uh, reforms of the judiciary, reforms around like LGTB rights, abortion. There's a, a lot that can be meant by that. It was primarily the judiciary reforms, though, and we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, but essentially, Germany and the Netherlands said, listen, you halt those reforms, you roll them back, or you don't get the money. So there was, and then after that, over the course of the last month, there was a huge uh, hassle. There was a huge, like, back and forth, like Hungary and Poland uh, made a veto threat. They said, you know, no, we don't accept this conditionality, and we're going to veto the whole damn thing so that no one will get any money, because remember, you need unanimity uh, for the whole package. So they felt that they were being bullied, and they said, we're going to veto the whole thing unless this one uh, mechanism is taken out. And they've succeeded because uh, the last news from yesterday was that the, the thing was taken out. And now we finally have a deal that is going to come into effect. Uh, I don't know. I think we can expect early next year, like January, yeah. like the yeah. money's going to start flowing to the States. Uh, but, but, um, but yeah, it's. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's um, interesting to see how these are essentially political debates. True. I mean, there's no other way. I'd, I'd, I'd love to get into the detail, but I think uh, I, I kind of want to see other topics at the, at the end, which I think have a lot to say. We have a lot to say about. Um, but these are political topics. And this is a perfect example of how hard it is um, at European level to be to have the same view and, and, and especially to respect democracies european democracies within themselves without kind of stepping on them by introducing mechanisms that are literally um, have no grounds uh, uh you have to respect european values. like what i'm trying to say is that european values have such a wide interpretation depending on what country you're in that you, like i see myself as a european and uh, uh, i one thing that is important for someone who feels European is to acknowledge that my vision of Europe is definitely not the vision of Europe uh, of people in different countries, especially in Poland or Hungary, where they have very different um, views and, and they have a, a government that reflects that. So it's important at a European level to respect that. And um, it's a challenge then to take on Macron's vision of a deeper integrated Europe, a stronger Europe, uh, and a Europe that is a, a able to uh, act by itself in the world stage, because then we have challenges, which we haven't talked about, the technolo technological challenge, which is massive as well, which there's push to create a European 5G or whatever, and, 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 and a, a lot of talks around technology. But this is extremely hard to manage within the European and and a lot of you, you were mentioning give off stuff early on and a lot of like Eurocrats and and pro very pro European MEPs mm, say that their agendas are hard to kind of push towards and, and get done because Europe. Uh, has to have unanimity and majority voting and these have been reduced uh, throughout the years since maastricht i think um but at the same time it's um it's it's hard because you, you can't see europe as one country essentially is what i'm trying to say you know you have to try and respect every member state's um 
democracy and sovereignty uh, to some extent. Do you know what I mean? Because then I think you're literally kind of like pushing too hard. So I think, it, it, will it be a matter of time, do you think, or will it just remain as such? Well, um, first of all, I, I couldn't agree more with uh, the, the, the what we were saying there at the start. I mean, um, um, we, we can maybe get into some of the details of this rule of law thing. The, the, at the end of the day, the, the important thing is that they were able to, Germany and the Netherlands were made to realize that the way they conditioned the money on this very kind of partial, um, narrow interpretation of what they call rule of law was going to, was threatening the whole deal that had taken months to stitch together. And it was threatening it, not just for Hungary and Poland, not even uh, just for Germany and the Netherlands. It was, it was in, in, in endangering the entire deal for all the 27 member states. So, but I, I really, I, I also agree with how you've, I mean, there's certainly a lot of implications to draw from what's just happened for the strategic autonomy debate. So I, that's where I agree with you as well is, you know, Macron has an incredibly ambitious vision of what Europe could be doing together. And the way that, you, that he should be tempering his own vision is by realizing that there's a myriad interests, myriad different, different uh, even just focusing on strategic autonomy, there's like all, all these different ways the countries perceive that to mean. So I, I, I would absolutely agree with that. The, I guess the only thing I'd say is that, again, what it comes down to is defining strategic autonomy. And the, the easiest way to define it, or the most obvious pillar of it, is defense, right? Is that we should be spending more defense. Yeah, we should, what we were talking and, about. Yeah. Right. And we should be staving off threats. And again, we'll, we'll, we can get into some of that. But uh, essentially, the idea is that, you know, we shouldn't be a geopolitical playing field. We should be a geopolitical player that has our, its own resources to engage in conflicts or to stave off conflicts. But, um, but defense is the one issue where you have the most agreement, right? Like traditionally, historically, the country that has been most uh, reticent, the, the country that has resisted uh, uh, higher defense spending has been Germany. Germany is one of the uh, worst underspenders. Uh, they've never had a really strong army. I mean, you, met, you mentioned Spain. I think Ireland isn't, isn't, doesn't come off too well either. But Germany is a bigger country, and Germany has always been on the spotlight. And Trump was very keen on saying, you know, you're, you know Mer Merkel, you should be spending more uh, on defense. But, um, but that's one issue where Germany has shifted a lot. And now, you, although you had AKK rebut Macron, and we can get into, the, uh, into this, um, Essentially, for instance, in the CDU, the, the, the center-right party in Germany, there's a wider there's a wide agreement that they should be spending more. So the the ball game is changing. The the the, the consensus is shifting towards more spending. So that's one issue where you could have more agreement. But then, as you said, strategic autonomy means a lot more than just defense. It means um, industrial policy, right? The idea, Macron's idea, that the EU should be subsidizing and propping up industrial champions. Right, Alstom, Siemens, all of these, like I'm sure Spain has a lot too, right? Um, all these industrial companies that uh, that uh, that Macron says we should be funding them so that they become even bigger champions to compete with the Chinese. We're getting funded to a much higher tune, uh, and in some to some extent in the U.S. as well. But uh, again, when you step out into industrial policy, when you step out into trade, when you step out into scientific research, when you step out into um, again, you mentioned at the start, Will, which I thought was really uh, interesting, pharmaceutical supply chains. I mean, Macron is using COVID 
to advance his argument is saying, look, when COVID hit, we didn't have masks, we didn't have ventilators, we didn't have any of those important things and we had to import them from a country that is a threat and that would use that, those resources to, the, to their advantage. So we need to build up our own capabilities. But again, there's so many issues that you could, that, um, that you could um, uh, roll this uh, throughout. And, um, and it, 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 the further you venture out of defense, the harder it is to have an agreement. So, so I would totally agree with you. It's, it's a very ambitious vision and it's gonna take a lot of, a lot of uh, time and a lot of work to have all these countries coming together around one vision of what should the EU do internationally. Yeah, that's, I, I, I think that's so interesting what you were mentioning about how he's using COVID to accelerate his vision. Um, because it's really easy for people to kind of come around the fact that, oh, we don't have masks, so we should produce them. But like extrapolating that to every other issue is very hard. Um, and I think it, it, it will also be a hard discussion and it will be a slow process because we have to realize that obviously Europe is formed by democracies and we have a president now in France who is portraying himself as the European leader and with a very ambitious view on Europe but in 2022 we could have a completely different scenario I mean the polls don't say don't reflect that at the moment but we could have Le Pen going into power or maybe not in 2022, but in 2027, we could have a very different vision. Do you know what I mean? So it's constantly changing, and it's important to realize that this is going to be a slow process, I think. We might get there politically, but you'll always have um, opposition. from. Uh, and, and to be fair, Europe has gotten to uh, a stage where it's very, very tightly integrated. Mm, yeah. So if if the course does continue, I think it's just a matter of time, long time. But I think it's a matter of time till we see a a more integrated integrated Europe at a political level as well, just political level, just to englobe every other issue. Um, okay, I think it's a very interesting discussion up to now. To finish up, but when I say to finish up, we still have a lot to discuss. But kind of to make people see that we're in the last block now. Um, I mentioned at the start we're going to talk about defense. We've talked a great deal about defense, but I want to kind of shift the debate now and make the last uh, topic, last discussion um, on Islamist terrorist uh, attacks, which have occurred in Paris and Vienna recently, um, and how Macron has pushed for harder border controls, harder immigration policies, uh, p- police reinforcement, not just French police, French, uh, Spanish police as well, Italian police. So like um, like you were talking earlier on about the, having different military um, from different nations work together. Well, the same. We already had that, but reinforcing that uh, in, 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 in board and European, uh, European borders. So my question to you is, um, will what is my question to you so we have islam well not my question i think i kind of want to give way to you and to for you to give us kind of your insight or your views on on these islamist terrorist attacks at european level and also if you want to finish up on kind of how it's been portrayed abroad this vision of a harder border controls being harder on is extreme islam as well in france uh, but in Europe too, what's your take on it? 
Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And it's also an issue that I think is not going to go away. It's one where, um, so I think um, if you go back to the last, um, not, 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 so the last EU council meeting was uh, two days ago. Right is when they 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 did what we've just described about Hungary and Poland kind of winning the day, and when they when Germany and the Netherlands agreed to drop uh, the conditionality thing. But the one prior to that was shortly after the Vienna attack, right? R remember when? And uh, I guess Samuel Paty's assassination had been in between that one and the one prior. But the the EU Council meeting prior to last, prior to to two days ago, was shortly after the Vienna attack. And that's when um, Chancellor Kurtz, the Austrian PM and Macron uh, like put on the agenda. They wanted to bring up the issue of what are we gonna do to uh, further like intelligence cooperation? What can we do as a block, as a, as a block of 27 mem uh, member states to better share intelligence? I mean, remember, I think you, you were alluding to some of this earlier when the uh, twin attacks in 2015, 2015, when you had the attacks in Paris on the Bataclan and the Hypercacher, yeah. two of the, the deathliest attacks that have ever taken. Yeah. France has been very hardly hit. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that, that was 2015. Uh, the, the, um, the suspects, well, not the suspects, because they, they were suspects then, but the suspects fled in a car to Belgium and they, they, they hid away in uh, Brussels for, for a few days and then each of them was caught in, in a different way. In, uh, yeah, um, actually, yeah. And, and there's also the Charlie Hebdo attack, which was yeah. also so that year. Yeah, yeah. There was the, so that, the Bataclan was in November and the Charlie Hebdo was at the start of the year, but 2015 had those two kind of major attacks, right? Um, but again, terrorists, once they hit, they move. And uh, police forces work at a national level. So they need to be able to share information so that the, the terrorists are, are caught. So that's the intelligence or the law enforcement, law enforcement slash intelligence side of the problem. And that's a, an issue where I would expect there's gonna be a lot more cooperation. I mean, essentially what it comes down to with these days is just a failure of cooperation. Like you have the same thing in Belgium. Belgium is a country that speaks two languages and they have a whole lot of policing problems because the Flemish and the French have like different, I don't know, methods. They, like, they don't get along. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's too. Um, so when you take that, when you look at the European scale, uh, those problems are exacerbated. The police forces need to have ways to work together and you have uh, Europe, Europol which is does some of that, but but Macron wants to go further, and I think you're going to see a lot of success there. I think the more you start seeing the threat, but there's another issue to the there's another side to the coin, which is okay. That's when terrorists hit, but what about when terrorists come from abroad? So the migration piece is also very important. We saw in 2015 when we had the asylum crisis, when we had one million. Uh, primarily Syrians, not only Syrians, but one million refugees primarily coming from Syrians, storming uh, the borders through Southern Europe, like coming through Lesbos, Lampedusa, uh, like um, crossing the Serbian border through Hungary. That, that was a, a big year for the EU as well, because that's when Angela Merkel said, we need to have this quota system where we're going to mm. reallocate all these refugees across Hungary. Uh, but anyway, there's also the migration piece. Like, how are we going to, because we, again, we don't have internal borders. We're, we're, a free, we're a free movement 
we, we have a Schengen area where once you come into one country, you can move freely. So we need to have, a, we need to have better enforcement of external borders so that all of all EU countries can have enough resources to patrol our external borders so that we have the same level of stringency to get into the EU. So, because again, France may have a very good uh, uh, enforcement of external borders when you have flights coming in from Damascus. If a flight yeah. comes in from Damascus into Paris, the French police may have like top of the class enforcement of its laws where it's like screens people and it like has a really good system to track people's criminal record and whatnot. But maybe great Greece doesn't have such a good system, but if someone flies from Damascus into Greece, once they've gotten through the Greek system, they can easily pitch a taxi or go to, to France and attack France. So we need to have better enforcement of external borders and the two sides of the coin, the migration and the policing are, are very important. And, um, and I think you're gonna, you're, I think at the end of the day, you're gonna see much better cooperation on that front. That's one issue where I don't really see how you can oppose it. I mean, um, again, as you said, France is in the difficult situation of having borne mo more than its share of terrorist attacks. So now it finds itself in a position telling other countries, listen, this is a real threat. But now you have Austria. Austria hadn't been hit until they had the attack on the synagogue. I don't think they've had any major attack. Germany had some recent attacks with a Christmas market in Munich a few years ago. We've had our own attacks in Barcelona, but the more that countries start waking up to the threat, I think the more that you're gonna have cooperation and it's a, it's hugely important. Yeah, and you've also seen um, Merkel kind of taking on board uh, Macron's narrative um, against Islamist terrorism and saying that Islamist terrorism is one of the biggest threats to Europe, Europe right now. Um, obviously talking in, in, in defense terms. Um, so I think uh, to conclude, and as we were mentioning uh, earlier on about differences within Europe, we've, I think, hopefully done uh, an average job, good job at uh, summarizing or giving people a view of uh, how ambitious and how, how complex and how hard um, Macron's plans for Europe are hard to implement. Um, but I want to talk about one person's opposition in particular, which is AKK. You were mentioning earlier on French defense minister when Macron was talking about building a stronger defense, saying that the UN Security Council uh, didn't work, NATO is brain dead, and that Europe needed to be more independent. Uh, but AKK coming along and saying that, I mean, uh, hold your horses. Uh, we still need to depend uh, greatly on the US. But Macron took that a bit personally and said that, well, Macron, or Merkel, your, your boss, agrees with me. So... Uh, but but AKK is, stands in her in her arguments and says, I mean, and I can kind of buy her arguments. And I can understand where she's coming from. Where it's it, as we were talking, Macron's plan is so ambitious, and AKK is kind of shedding some, I think, some reality on the fact that it, it, we're not at that point yet. Like, relax, do you know what? What yeah. do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it was a very first of all, I, th I thought it was a very interesting. Um, it was kind of a watershed moment where you had like a, a, a prime minister, well, president, and a, a, of one country and a defense minister of another getting into this uh, this high stakes kind of like highly mediatized debate 
where each was like giving interviews where they were like taking stabs at each other. Like I think at one point Macron said Akaka was naive. So that got very heated. And then I think the thing is somewhat quieted down since, but it's very, it was, it hardened the battle lines. I think you could clearly see there were two camps. I think the, the, the one thing I will say about this is uh, one of the things that really struck me is it seems as though we're having different conversations. I mean, Macron has a vision of strategic autonomy, which by his own telling is a conversation about means. It's not a conversation about ends. Macron hasn't really made any concrete um, statement as to yeah. like strategic autonomy is a conversation about like how to get like the way the things that Europe should do in order to play a bigger role. Yeah, absolutely. But the conversation that Akaka wants to have is okay. Let's talk about what is our role, and it's two different conversations, okay, and that's why. Yeah, you, you, you're, you're talking past one another. Like Akaka said, okay, Macron is essentially like, they, they're deriding each other. They're being very cynical with each other. So Akaka says, well, Macron says that the Germans and Akaka specifically are feckless, that they're irresponsible, that they don't want to spend on their own defense, that they want Europe to be this sort of, uh, 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 there's a, an adjective in France, rabougri, like they want to play this very small role in the world stage and let others own you, like let China like build our, our infrastructure and let the United States build our defense capabilities. And that those, and, and, and Macron says, no, no, we need to be courageous and we need to be, uh, you know. Get out yeah. of the bubble. Exactly, exactly. And Akaka on the other side says, no, no, Macron wants to be a protectionist. He wants to be autarchical. So each, each side is like um, caricaturing the other. And but again, I think we're having different conversations because Akaka, the way that she has labeled her case is by saying, I am the Atlanticist, mm. which is deeply misleading because, um, again, uh, like Akaka says, no, no, my vision is that we should be as close as possible and as close as we've always been to the states, right? We need to, we need to keep a strong transatlantic relationship and strategic autonomy will drive us away from that because it essentially means that you're, that you're, that you're, um, breaking off from, from uh, the transatlantic relationship. And I think that those are two different conversations. I think strategic autonomy is, is a, it's an empty shell. It's, a, it's, a, it's the means to achieve something, but you can fill that empty shell with whatever it is you want to achieve. And in fact, Akaka is doubly uh, misleading because she, when she said, she, I read her interview and she said, you know, we, are, we the Atlanticists, we are the Germans and the Central Europeans and the Baltics, and essentially anyone who is in France. They've essentially, Akaka think, thinks that it's essentially everyone against Macron. But it's very misleading, because if you, you, if you follow, for instance, foreign policy debates in Central and Eastern Europe, like the Poles and the Czechs and the Baltics, they hate German foreign policy because they think it's feckless, the same way that Macron thinks it. Because the Poles spend a whole lot on defense. Estonia, Latvia, Lithu uh, Lithuania spend a okay. whole lot on defense because they've got Russia next door. Yeah. So each side is framing the debate in a way that advances its own case. You know, so I, for instance, I would want to get the, the best of both worlds. I want Europe to be strategically autonomous and the closest as possible to the states. I want us to spend more to be, uh, to, to have a larger role, but that larger role needs to be in cooperation on, on almost every issue. I don't see any issue where we'd want to drive ourselves apart from, from our American allies. And, and so I, I guess I'm kind of like stuck in the middle. Like, yes, I like the autonomy, but I, I want to take that as a shell and I want to fill it with Atlanticism. But I think like each side, it, it has like one side of the answer. Um, 
No, it's it's a definitely a discussion that can go on for hours. Uh, I think it's a good point to leave it at. Um, uh, yeah, it was it was just a very go on. Sorry, I've been on for so long. No, absolutely not. It's just a, such a it's such an interesting discussion. Like I would go on for hours, but I just don't want the episode to be extra long. Um, but yeah, um, I, I I completely get where you're coming from with your with your views on 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 Macron's differences to AKKs. I think it, it's a, a very good way of seeing them. Uh, and a very good explanation. Um, so yes, I think um, we're going to leave it at that. Uh, essentially, in conclusion, Macron very ambitious. Great to have someone out there like that putting ideas out there. We need people like that. I think, uh, in my personal opinion, um, then reality hits and you see the complexities that arise, and we've talked about them. But anyway, thank you very much, Jorge. That was an thank excellent so chat. Much. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, thanks so much for having me on. And um, and uh, I, I will make sure to keep listening to your podcast. But this has been really, really, uh, really enjoyable and really fun to speak to. Hopefully, we'll have you back on. Um, to our listeners, thank you very much for tuning in, and we will see you in the next one.